0: Our reading today comes from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this word and we thank you that though Jonah said it in anger, we can say it with joy, and that we may say it with joy, that you are a gracious God uh, who is merciful and slow to anger, Lord, um, we thank you for this mirror of ourselves that we have in Jonah, um, one who is faithless to you, uh, one who runs from you, and yet still you are faithful and comes to us, God, um, Lord, I just ask that as we sit here today that our hearts would be open to this message, the word that you have for us, to Christ presented here in Jonah. Um, Lord, sweet as home to pilgrims, weary, weary and light to the new, newly opened eyes, God. Uh, may our eyes be open to what you have for us, Lord, as we come to your house today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Christian. Well, you've probably read that book that went on for a chapter too long. Or you watched the movie that went on for about five minutes too long. Where the story wrapped up beautifully and everyone was ready to ride off into the sunset. And some writer, some screen producer decided, no, we need to add in some final postscript to this otherwise perfect story. And the credits are rolling and you're wondering... Why did they do that? It certainly has felt that way so far in our reading of this very well-known prophetic book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3 ends with Jonah going to Nineveh, preaching a message that God had given to him that in 40 days you, Nineveh, will fall, you great superpower in Assyria, you will fall And there we see Nineveh fall to its knees and sackcloth and ashes, the king himself calling a fast and the whole city repenting of their sins and turning unto God. And we read at the very end of Jonah chapter 3 that God relented from his anger and that he preserved, he saved Nineveh. And we learn that God uses, yes, even runaway, recently belched up prophets from great fish to accomplish his will despite their foolishness. And Nineveh was saved and the credits roll. And then there's chapter four. Why couldn't this have just been three chapters? Why couldn't have we just read that Jonah loved what it is that the Lord had done, and he was as thrilled with Nineveh as God was in their repenting of their sins and turning from the Lord. But as you can see in Jonah chapter 4, it's a far cry from that sort of ending, isn't it? An unfortunate ending, we might say, to an otherwise perfect story. But if we were to really draw that conclusion, it would mean that we wouldn't be seeing this with the eyes of faith and with the confidence that God has written his word and every single jot and tittle of it, every small dot and least stroke, every twist and turn of the story, even what appears like an anti climactic ending, is actually the perfect ending for the purposes that God has in store to teach us. From his word, to tell us something about our own hearts, as he in this passage faithfully exposes Jonah. And we find that he, though a prophet, is a lot like you and me. And that though he has grown over the course of our narrative, for in Jonah chapter one, he heard the call of the Lord and he fled from the presence of the Lord and finally. In Jonah chapter 3, he heard the call of the Lord and he did according to the word of the Lord. That's growth, friends. That's beginning to learn that you should follow God's voice and God had to persuasively, through discipline, lead Jonah to say yes to his call. But Jonah has learned that lesson. He's grown, but as we can see at the beginning of Jonah chapter 4, change doesn't happen in one failed swoop, does it? It comes incrementally. It takes all of us a long time. Thankfully, God is very patient. God is very patient here with Jonah, and he's very patient with you. He's allowed you to be here this morning to sit under his word. And as you look over the course of your history and your past, and you see the foolish turns that you've taken, and you've seen the course corrections, sometimes, yes, very difficult, that the Lord has brought into your life, can you not look back over his his course corrections and say, boy, he was so kind to not let me wander off into a path of destruction. But we see very clearly that God is that kind of kind and loving and gracious and merciful and steadfast God that Jonah confesses him to be right here in the midst of this text. He's been it in your life. He is it in Jonah's life. But it doesn't mean that it won't be hard from time to time. In fact, his kindness is is right upside next to his discipline. We learn from the writer of Hebrews. that for the moment, discipline is unpleasant, but it reaps a fruitful harvest of righteousness. We want to see the fruitful harvest of righteousness that the Lord is seeking to reap in Jonah and is seeking to reap in you and me as we pay attention to his word this morning. Well, I want to look at this passage with you in three ways. I want to look at it with you in three ways. I want you to see all D's. You're welcome. All D's this morning. Three ways I want us to look at this passage together. There's first a divine dilemma. A divine dilemma. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. And then we see secondly that there is a divine drama. we see this in verses 4 to 9. And then finally in the end... In verses 10 to 11, we see there is a divine deliverance. There's a divine deliverance. Let's look at this together first in the divine dilemma. The text opens with a commentary on Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's repentance and the forgiveness that God has granted to them. It's a reaction that really takes us by surprise, doesn't it? Listen to the way he says it there in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry now we've seen this throughout the book of Jonah the richness of the irony that is constantly dripping from this text God at the end of Jonah chapter 3 has just relented from his anger over Nineveh and at the opening of Jonah chapter 4 we see Jonah welling up with anger at the very thing that God relented his anger from And it's no light frustration here. It's no mere displeasure as the text seems to indicate here. That word displeased actually means that Jonah saw it as exceedingly evil. It could be translated that way. Meaning that Jonah was seeing what God had done as a kind of injustice. He was not just a little bit upset about it. He was very, very angry. The word for anger here means to burn with passion. This is a man who is filled with rage... He is, as we like to say sometimes, fighting mad. Now the question becomes, right at the beginning of Jonah chapter 4, is what in the world is Jonah mad about? I mean, let's think about it. He is now the most successful evangelist in the Middle East. He has just gone into his enemy city of Nineveh and preached the word of the Lord, and the whole city repents. Now, if he was in North America, he'd be buying a tent, throwing down some sawdust, and taking this show on the road. He would be ready to market this and begin to have a career as an evangelist. But that's not what's in Jonah's mind at all. He is just absolutely mad. And he tells us the reason for it. Look at it in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Is not this what I said now that this is a reference of course to the redemption the relenting of judgment there in Nineveh did i not tell you this is exactly what i knew you were up to which is why when you first came to me with the call of this mission back in chapter 1 i promptly arose just as you told me to and then did nothing that you told me to i fled from your presence and headed to the opposite direction to tarshish you see i knew that you were up to this all along the way. Because I know who you are, verse 3. You're a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, those of you well-read in the Old Testament, many of you are, know that language as reflective of Exodus chapter 34. That wonderful passage where now, Moses has asked to see the glory of the Lord. And God has, in, in no uncertain terms, said, you can't handle my glory. And then coming back, Moses saying, no, please show me your glory. And the Lord says, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as I hide you in the cleft of the rock, my glory is going to pass by. And as my glory pass by, you're going to see, as it were, the hindquarters of my glory And in the glory of the Lord, as it passes by in Exodus chapter 34, God preaches a little mini-sermon on his name. His name of Yahweh, I am that I am, preaches a little sermon on his name, and we read these similar remarks, that I am a gracious God, I am merciful, I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, Jonah is a prophet. He knows his Old Testament. He's probably memorized this section of Scripture. It spills out of him. He knew that this is exactly who God is, but here's what's so fascinating about it. As he confesses the truth of God in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, he does so not as a worshiper, but as a complainer. He does so as one who wishes that God were not like this, at least with regards to the Ninevites. He sees this as a fly in the ointment of the divine character. This is the Achilles heel of the divine makeup. And this should be bewildering to us. Because as we've read the story of Jonah and we've watched his life, is Jonah blind to the fact that he is a recipient of the very mercy and grace that he is so angry that the Ninevites have received? I mean, has he already forgotten Jonah chapter 2? when he was praying that wordless prayer as his lungs began to fill up with water as he floated to the bottom of the sea and God appointed fish to come and to swallow him up and then to vomit him up on dry land again. Has he forgotten that he, his life very much hung in the balance and that he deserved death himself and God through his mercy gave to him life and as it were resurrected him, brought him back from the grave? It reminds me of the prophet's words, words that are on Jesus' own lips in the New Testament. As he speaks about the Pharisees, he says, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Isn't that what it feels like right now for Jonah? He's a man who knows the word of God backwards and forwards. He can recite his catechism. He gets an A on his systematic theology test. But this truth has not transformed his life, not to the degree that it needs to. He's learning in deeper dimensions what this gracious, loving, merciful, steadfast love of God really is, but he doesn't like it. Now before we come down too hard on on Jonah, you feel yourself getting up on a high horse looking down at Jonah? Let me ask you. Have you ever been eaten up with anger at someone whom you thought didn't deserve grace? Let's be honest, this is a safe place. All of us have been there. You know, maybe it's that person at work who seems to get the promotions and yet doesn't do anything. And yet there you are working as hard as you possibly can and it seems that good things just seem to fall in their lap. And even when they're caught doing the things that they ought not to do, it's as if they get off the hook and somehow get rewarded. Whereas you breathe in the wrong direction and the hammer comes down on you. You see, we have a tendency to look out at those who are the wicked, the enemies, those who are not like us in other ways. And to believe that when good things happen to them, in the back of our minds, a voice is beginning to speak to us that should have been mine, not theirs. They're not worthy of that. They don't deserve that kind of grace. And what it actually is saying to us when that voice is speaking into our hearts is that we are a people who are full of pride and prejudice. That's where Jonah is in this passage, and it's often where many of us live our lives. He's a prophet of the people of Israel, He's the one who has received the covenant promises. He is the one um, in whom God has anointed to carry out this remarkable gift of prophecy. He is the one who is the prized possession of the Lord. Surely he is the apple of God's eye. And what we see here is that God decides to show mercy to his arch enemy. And he can't stand that others who are unworthy get treated like he should get treated. Oh, you feel that in your own heart? Have you been there? Are you there today? Can you right now even have names and maybe faces of people whom you've harbored resentments and bitternesses towards? And you have, as it were, thought that you're on a higher pay grade or scale of a human being than they are, and yet it seems like God's doing all kinds of good things for them when in reality they don't deserve it. Listen, this bugs Jonah so deeply. Look in verse 3. It's remarkable. It says this. Therefore, Lord, take my life, for it is better to die than to live. Really, Jonah? Does this not feel a little bit like adolescent exaggeration? Uh, Oh, God has saved Nineveh. My life is over. I mean, that's a little bit of what it feels like. Oh, Lord, take my life. You kind of want to go, hold up here, cowboy. No, no need to run to extremes. But this the reality is this has pierced Jonah's soul so deeply. It's rocked his world so significantly. He doesn't have a category for understanding God acting in this way. He doesn't have a gospel large enough yet to encompass a people like Nineveh. And he has given his life to the serving of this God. He's built his life on this God. And now this God has done something that he cannot understand in the least. And so for Jonah in that moment, it does feel, and maybe correctly, that his life is over. Everything that he's lived for, he now doesn't seem to understand. God seems to act diametrically opposed to the way in which he has always seemed to act. And because of that, he is in a sense saying, life is not worth Living, it's not even worth being alive. Now, as you see this divine dilemma that for Jonah, he's experiencing God in his graciousness, now is going to come to Jonah and he says, listen, I want to put a bit of a three-act play on for you to teach you a little bit more about my mercy and my grace and for you to realize that it is an exaggeration to think that your life is over. And simply because you don't understand me in this moment doesn't mean there's not something to understand and doesn't mean there's not something for you to rest in. Indeed, something for you to come to love. That's why we move from this divine dilemma to what I'm calling this morning a divine drama. We see this in verses 4 to 9. We see how the Lord responds to this. I mean, Jonah, I mean, here he is, death wish comes to the Lord speaking to him and the Lord with this penetrating question responds back, do you do well to be angry? Boy, it reminds us of some of Jesus' questions, doesn't it, in the New Testament where we're going on and on about what's wrong and God very simply just says, do you do well to be angry? Very simple but provoking and meant to be soul-searching question from the Lord it's intended to have Jonah stop in his tracks and do a bit of a spiritual inventory but instead Jonah will have nothing of it it's like the moment when that person asks you the question and a tinge of conviction probably begins to rise in your heart and you push that conviction back down as fast as you can and just think yeah you're probably right but I'm mad I'm not going to admit it even if I see it at this point. In fact, don't we get no response here from Jonah? None whatsoever. The question just sits With no response from Jonah, except this, that Jonah promptly gets up, he goes out east of the city of Nineveh, and he decides that he's going to wait there and, as it were, filibuster God's decision. He's going to wait him out. He said 40 days, I'll give him 40 days, 30 days, 20 days, 10 days. He's wind up a clock, he's watching it tick down. As he watches it tick, tick down, he is hoping at some level, maybe Nineveh will slip up and reverse their repentance, or maybe God, as, a, as blasphemous as it would be to say it, it must have crossed his mind. Maybe God will wise up and respond differently than he has. He marches out there and he builds this little lean-to shed called a booth, probably made of wood and branches to shield him from the scorching sun. And as he sat there, he just got mad, more mad, increasingly mad. And then God did something very kind. In verse 6, now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, that word appointed, I want to just pause on that word for a second because it shows up in this divine drama three other times. It shows up in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. In quick succession, it kind of overshadows this entire section and it is intended... To point to the fact that God is sovereignly putting on this play. This divine drama. Making Jonah live into the providence of the Lord in a very intentional way. And God is intervening to teach Jonah something very particular. We know this is the case because it's the very same word that's used at the end of Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. When God said that he appointed a fish to go and swallow Jonah. It's a remarkable intervention of the Lord. And here you can see that God is acting graciously towards Jonah in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his unbelief, in the midst of his, his frustration with Almighty God, with his waiting upon the Lord to change his mind. God comes to him and he grows up in a miraculous way this plant. Now, let me tell you, some of you have studied Bibles. Some of you are looking now at the asterisks in your text about this plant. Scholars love to talk about this plant. And they don't know what plant it is. I'm convinced of that. You could come up afterwards and ask me about the plant. I know nothing. I know nothing about the plant. I can't help you with the plant. You might have read that it was a castor oil plant. It does seem at least plausible to me that Jonah drank some castor oil at some point during this whole process, but I'm not sure if it was a castor oil plant or not. I can't be sure of that, but what I, what I will tell you here is that this is meant as a display of God's kindness towards Jonah, even in the midst of his anger and in the midst of his rebellion. We're actually told that it has that effect. Jonah has gone from being exceedingly displeased, verse 1, to exceedingly happy or glad in verse 6, but... As you know, this is short-lived. This is Jonah, after all. Verses 7 and 8. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed, notice, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And then when the sun rose, God, notice, appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. What was a happy drama, a comedy, has turned tragic here in verses 7 and 8. This miraculous plant that was giving Jonah the shade that he so longed for is now no more. And not only that, God has sent a breeze. Oh no, not just a stiff breeze, not like the one that I experienced yesterday on the soccer field over on Downs Boulevard. This cool, stiff breeze, no, 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 not that kind of breeze. This is a Soraka wind. The wind that would come from the southeast off of the Mediterranean, that's how it's described here even in the text, and would whisk across the desert at speeds that have been clocked up to hurricane force. This is no mere wind. This is a natural disaster that is taking place. This is something that the locals in the area fear as one of their worst natural disasters. It is God who has appointed now not a pleasant little plant to come up over Jonah he's taken that away but guess what he's also done with the wind he has probably blown away his little rickety lean-to shed and now he sits baking in the hot sun in fact quite interestingly the word for beat down the sun beat down on Jonah is the same word for the worm attacking the plant literally means that the sun is attacking Jonah as if the elements of the world are at war with the prophet now we've seen this already in the book of jonah with regards to the storm in jonah chapter one that god is as it were bringing heaven to earth in the elements actually showing forth the rebellion of jonah it's almost as if jonah is exactly in the same place that he was except there's no water around this time That's what it really means by this language of and Jonah grew faint. It doesn't mean that he heard some ghastly news and almost fainted. It's not as if he's... This is not an 18th, 19th century Downton Abbey kind of fainting. This is the kind of fainting that means I'm on the brink of death. It's Jonah suffering, as it were, from a sunstroke. He's knocking on death's door. But there's something really different about Jonah... In Jonah 4 than in Jonah 1. Jonah 1 in this moment cries out to the Lord in prayer. But Jonah in Jonah chapter 4 does nothing of the sort. Look at verse 8. It is better for me to die than to live. Now that's a dark place. That's a dark place. Some of us have been here maybe most of us over the course of our lives as things unfold that are even yet to unfold will be at a place where Jonah is where the providences of the lord the elements of life come together to create tragedy and we have no reason no or no understanding no rationale behind why it is that this is happening the realization is that it does appear quite clearly that Jonah is at a loss He is a prophet who has been blinded by his rage. He doesn't have clarity as to who God is. He's living, as it were, under an absurd divinity who has made promises, has said he will do these things. I've known him to be this kind of person, and now he goes and saves my archenemy. And on top of this, as he saves them, he sends to me a Soraka wind which just about kills me, and the sun beats down upon me, and now I'm on the verge of sunstroke. He's not going to kill the Ninevites, but he's going to kill me. That's the spirit of this text. You see, some of us can imagine this person as someone who's depressed, discouraged, barely lifting their head up as they stare at the floor, but actually the picture given to us here is that but Jonah's fighting mad. He's shaking his fist at the Lord. And this is why the Lord asks him again the penetrating question that he asked him earlier in the text with a slight addition. He says to him, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? It's interesting that in verse 3 when God originally asked that question of Jonah, he was asking about Jonah's anger regarding the deliverance that he had brought to the Ninevites. But now God is asking it from a different source. Here in verse 8, God asked the question regarding Jonah's anger after destroying the plant. Do you see What Jonah actually wanted to see happen was Nineveh be destroyed and he be saved. But what seems to be happening is that he is being destroyed and Nineveh is being saved. It's almost the spirit of the the psalmist. When the psalmist is saying, Lord, why do those in the world who are sinful seem to prosper? Why is it as I look out on the world... It's them who are getting rich. It's them who are getting fat. It's them who are getting their wishes. And your people just seem to suffer. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And, of course, it was answered with great silence in verse 3. But here, Jonah's fed up. He's had enough. And he's ready to give God a piece of his mind. Look at what he says in verse 9. Yes, I do well to be angry Angry enough to die. I want you to hear in Jonah's words what he believes is a justification for his anger. He believes he has a reason to be angry. This is why some of the translations as you read over the text in the Hebrew could go a number of ways here actually translate the question do you have a right to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Meaning is it the appropriate thing? Is it the right thing? to be angry and it does seem that Jonah believes he has a right to be angry not merely for the way that he's been treated but for what he sees as an injustice of God forgiving pagan Ninevites and for now God treating him for the way that he's being treated he really believes as many of us sometimes believe in our relationship with the Lord that he is owed something better than this He's owed something better than this. But God shows him listen, Jonah, the absurdity is not on my end. The absurdity is on your end. Let me tell you how he does this as he brings us to the divine deliverance. He says this You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in the light. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left and also so much cattle? You see what God has done. He's saying, Jonah, let me get this right. Let me see if I can spell this out for you so you can see it. You have pity for a vine that you didn't grow, that's not yours, that lasted only one day. It's a little bitty old scrawny thing, doesn't hardly matter at all, its meaningfulness is very low. You have great pity on it, but you don't think I should pity the 120,000 eternal souls in Nineveh who are morally confused. That's what we mean by this language of not knowing their left hand from their right hand. They're morally corrupt. They're morally confused. They're lost, is what he's describing. Don't you think I should have pity upon them? And even so, if not pity upon them, at least upon their cattle? I find that humorous. At least on their cattle? I mean, plant cattle. It seems, almost it seems, that the Lord is putting it, as it were, before Jonah's eyes. Jonah, don't you think it would be appropriate for me to be moved to compassion? That's what that word pity really means. Moved to compassion for them. When you are more compassionate and full of pity for the little strawny plant that died, you know why you're more compassionate and pity-filled for the plant that died? Because you're more concerned, Jonah, about you than about the people of Nineveh. You only care what I do for you. You are absolutely consumed with you. The the, the sacred trinity of which you are serving is me, myself, and I. You seem to not be aware that I am the one who has a love for the nations. That my covenant promises that have been entrusted to you and the people of Israel and you as their prophet are not meant for you to sit simply in a holy huddle. But I'm giving you an example of the fact that I'm going to break the boundaries of the walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to make Jerusalem the praise of all of the earth because I'm going to spread my Jerusalem. My holy city is going to end up in Nineveh as much as it's going to be in Jerusalem. I have a heart for the nations. Jonah, it is not that you are special because you are special. Either you are special only because I have set my love upon you. And now Nineveh is special because I have set my love upon them. Don't go thinking that you're walking around with credentials, flashing your badge as the prophet of God for Israel. Oh, no, no. The redemption that I have come to bring is for every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jonah, you're a part of that mission. You're a part of that work. I have a love to bring my kingdom to wherever the curse is found. In other words, Jonah, aren't you glad that I'm a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Aren't you glad that I'm being awfully patient with you? Those Ninevites were looking like terrible, horrible people, weren't they? But aren't you in this moment feeling strangely close in association with them? Don't you sense your own measure of neediness for the grace of God even maybe beyond the pagans who are in the faraway country, the ones whom you've given up hope in that you think will never receive the grace of God and should never receive the grace of God? Don't you see Jonah now? You are my enemy, Jonah. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, he died for us. Jonah, do you sense that you're of a better blood pay grade than everybody else? No, it's a level playing field when it comes to sinfulness before the holiness of Almighty God. And not even a prophet or a preacher, for that matter, has anything on anybody When it comes to the righteousness of God, you see, my mercy is so wide and so deep that I've not only used you when you hated Nineveh, I made you the greatest evangelist, though you disliked them. And even in the midst of your rebellion of me and your anger towards me, I'm still giving you love and being patient to you. You see, God is interested not merely in bringing his judgment because of our failure to keep his holiness. He's interested in melting us by his love and drawing us into his family. You see, God doesn't turn up the heat on Jonah here to simply punish him. He disciplines him because he loves him. He wants to draw him deeper into a wider and expansive mercy that is the very mercy of God. Do you see in Exodus 34, fascinatingly, when Jonah quoted that passage in a complainer tone is actually on the heels of the people of Israel, building their golden calf, forsaking Almighty God who had just brought them out of Egypt. They're turning back to the idols of their former country and they're not looking forward to the God in whom they are actually called to follow and serve. What it means is that the very quotation that Jonah gave about the character of God had to do because the moment that God gave that quote, his own people were entrenched in idolatry. Isn't it ironic that he thinks that he and Israel have this privileged place over and against Nineveh regarding the holiness and the mercy of God when in reality the very verse that he quoted is a scene where they're in one of their darkest moments of idolatry? God is so patient. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He is so steadfast in his love. This is why I love verse 6. Because it really is a, it's a beautiful verse. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant to, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, that word discomfort is the same word for displeased. And the first one could be translated evil, which, which means we could read it this way. That the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his evil. That God was casting a shade over Jonah, a kindness over Jonah in the midst of his sin as an enemy opposed to the Lord. God gave him shade to save him from his evil. Now let me tell you, God is using this to save Jonah. And even though this plant doesn't ultimately last and become the shade that Jonah abides in that ultimately saves him from evil, there is a tree who casts a shade over you and me that covers us from the piping hot wrath of God of which we can never be sustained. There is a shade that comes in the cloak of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who received that very penalty for us on the cross, who redeemed us through receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. Do you see, he can be patient with Jonah because he wasn't patient with his own son. He poured out his wrath on his own son. He can be merciful to Jonah because he's going to pour the wrath of Jonah on his own son. Do you see that's the shade and the covering that's been given to us in the tree, in the cross? And the remarkableness of this particular passage. Is that it says, if we begin to drink in deeply this glorious grace, a change begins to overtake us. Now it's not a change that we see here. And in fact, it's fascinating that the book ends in a question, doesn't it? I've already been asked by some of you in this room. Does Jonah ever learn his lesson? Well, I ask you, do you? I think that's why the book ends in a question. The book is less concerned about whether you think Jonah learned this lesson. God's more concerned about whether you're learning this lesson. Are you under the shade of the cross? Are you cloaked in the righteousness of Christ? Are you fit comparing yourself to others, thinking that you're better, becoming angry because you think they've got it made in the shade? When in reality, you, through the work of Christ is the one who lives in the redemption of the coolness of His mercy and of His love and of His steadfast grace towards you. Listen, friends, today may be a day where you've been built up with anger before the Lord because of these reasons. God says today's a day to release it. Today's a day to release it. Today's a day to turn from your sin unto God and to repent. And to realize when you thought you had it so bad... God was turning your heart towards His heart, showing you that His mercy reaches far beyond anything you could hope or imagine. Do you see, Middle Tennessee is Nineveh. We are the Ninevites. And simultaneously, as those who have embraced Jesus Christ and are seeking to follow Him, we can become like Jonas who angrily look out at those whom we think don't deserve grace and get mad because God is kind. Friends, let's let that go. And today, relax into the arms of Christ. He's paid for that sin. Yes, even that one. And He invites you deeper into His mercy. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, please, by Your grace now, we would ask that You confirm these truths to us. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, teach to us the exact measure of what you would have us know for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.